to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Why is the world the mess that it's in? It's not because of God. It's not God's fault. It's because free moral agents, me, you, everybody else on the planet, we have chosen to exercise our free will and quite often to do so against the will of God. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Genesis. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, in a message titled, The Origin of Sin and Evil. Now, here's Pastor Brian. There was suddenly this horrifying sense that something was radically wrong with them in relation to God. So, you see, Satan's promising enlightenment. He's promising God-likeness. God says, no, the day that you eat it, you will die. And, of course, as God said, it was true. And so the very first experience they have, the moment their eyes are opened, suddenly they have this sense of guilt. Secondly, they have this incredible sense of shame. You know, I I would imagine that to some degree, most of us in here could probably identify with this, where we at some time in our life, I know I certainly can, you know, my life before I was a Christian, even though I wasn't a Christian, I had a conscience, even though I wasn't a Christian, I knew there was right and wrong, even though I wasn't a Christian, I knew, you know, in some sense, there was a God that I was accountable to, and I can remember back to some of those incidents where I was being tempted And I succumbed to the temptation. And I remember all of, you know, the different elements that were involved. And that, you know, anticipation as I was moving in that direction and that expectation of what was going to come from it, that little sense that, you know, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, but pushing myself and going ahead anyway. And then it's almost like instantly, the moment you do it, suddenly you're, you're filled with guilt and shame. And just for that one, you know, moment's pleasure or that, you know, whatever it might have been, you, you have this, this experience that's just, it's so contrary to what you were anticipating, what you were hoping for. And these emotions, these feelings, these experiences of guilt and shame, these, these things are huge, You know, guilt is such a powerful thing. People are literally crippled with guilt because of their sins. Sin will cripple you. You will come under the the pressure of that guilt. And those feelings of shame, they can be unbearable. And, you know, we can't even imagine at all the radical contrast with Adam and Eve because, of course, we have been sinners from birth. 
And so, you know, when we go deeper and deeper into sin, we go through a process and, you know, a slow hardening thing. I mean, they went from being pure and innocent and holy in the light to just instantly being guilty and full of shame and in the dark. But there's guilt, there's shame, and then look at what comes next. The Lord God called to Adam, verse nine, and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. I was afraid. And this is where sin takes us. We're afraid of God. We run from God. We hide from God. We don't want to hear God's voice. There is that fear that sets in. That's what happened there. And then the next thing, there's enmity. Now, notice this. Verse 12, God, God says to Adam, how do you know that you're naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam says this, and you know, we chuckle at this sometimes but think about it more seriously. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave me. You see, this is, this is very, very serious because what Adam is doing at this point, you can already see in Adam an enmity toward God. Immediately, there is an enmity. There's an alienation. There's an antagonism. And there is a pointing of the finger at God. That's what he's doing. He's basically saying, it's your fault that this has happened. And how tragic, because that's one of the worst things about sin is that it causes us to become deluded and people rarely will take responsibility for their own action. The only way out of sin is to take responsibility for it. As long as you persist in pointing the finger somewhere else, you'll never get out of sin. You'll never get freed from it. And this is where Adam is at. Instead of taking responsibility for his own actions, he actually blames God for the situation. The woman whom you gave me. So there's enmity between God, or man and God now, and there's also enmity between man and the woman because Adam is not only blaming God, he's blaming the woman. And that beautiful relationship that had existed between the two of them was now suddenly broken. And Adam is pointing an accusing finger at his wife. And so there is the enmity and then sadly, there is the separation. So now the man and the woman are, are at odds. They're, they're now separated from one another. And now God and man are no longer living in communion and harmony as God intended it. Now there's this separation that has transpired. We, again, have much to learn from this story because as I've been saying, the story is being repeated over and over again every day. The same kind of thing is going on all around us. 
And quite often it is directed toward us. Because this same creature, this serpent, he is today actively pursuing God's people, trying to trip us up, trying to get us to fall, coming along and suggesting that God's word isn't true, coming along and contradicting God's word blatantly at times, saying, oh, don't worry about it, that won't happen, there won't be consequences, and, and, and people are succumbing like Eve did. How do, we, how do we resist that? I mean, Eve, obviously, the one thing she doesn't teach us is how to resist temptation, does she? So how do we resist temptation? Well, Jesus taught us how to resist temptation. And do you remember in those temptations that came to Jesus that we spoke about? Do you remember how Jesus responded? He was setting forth the example for us of the proper response to the devil's temptation. So what does he do? Satan comes along and says, if you're really the son of God, take these stones and turn them into bread. What does Jesus do? He doesn't at all entertain even the remotest possibility that perhaps God's word can't be trusted. He immediately responds back to the devil with this. It is written. And that is where we're going to obtain victory. We're going to obtain victory as we stand firmly on the word of God. I love what John says to, as he's writing his epistle there in that second chapter as well. He's speaking to the, the fathers, uh, to the children, and to the young men. And he says, he says to the young men, he says, you are strong and you have overcome the wicked one. And this is why, because the word of God abides in you. That's how we overcome the wicked one, the word of God abiding in us. So Satan says, turn these stones into bread. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, Jesus, we are told by Paul, Jesus is the second man. It's an interesting idea. Adam was the first man. Paul tells us Jesus was the second man. So what about all those in between? Well, I think what it's saying is actually everybody in between is not really man as God intended man to be. The first man sinned and led his posterity into sin. We are sinners because of Adam's sin. Adam sinned, and his sin was imputed to us, and thus we are sinners. So Adam, faced with Satan, he utterly fails the test. And why am I saying Adam? Because the Bible puts the the blame for the fall into sin squarely on the shoulders of Adam, interestingly, not on Eve. Because Eve was genuinely deceived. She was truly duped by the devil. 
Adam was not deceived. When Adam partook of the fruit, he did it with a full and complete understanding that he was rebelling against God. No deception whatsoever. And so sin is always put on the shoulders of Adam. By one man, not by one woman, by one man, sin entered into the world. So Adam, his encounter with the devil, he's an utter failure and he brings the entire race to ruin as a result of that. But now Jesus comes. He is the second man. He's the last Adam. Adam was tempted in the garden. Jesus is in the wilderness. Adam was in a perfect environment, perfectly healthy, perfectly whole. Jesus is in the desert. He's in the wilderness. He's fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He's weak because of the fasting. But basically what's happening in that is Jesus is having a showdown with the devil. And he is demonstrating the victory that he will ultimately have over Satan and the cross by resisting those temptations. And so Jesus fires back to the devil. It is written, you shall, man shall not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then when he took him upon the high mountain, all the kingdoms in the world, bow down and worship me. If you do this, I'll give you these kingdoms. They're mine. I can give them to whomever I will. And of course, Jesus came to do what? He came to redeem the world. Satan is essentially saying to him, look, you don't have to do it God's way. There's another way. I'll give them to you. You don't have to go to that cross. But again, what does Jesus say? It is written. He goes back to the word. And then on the pinnacle of the temple, cast yourself down. And interestingly, the devil shoots back, for it is written. Satan is crafty. He'll even quote the Bible to you sometimes. He'll quote the Bible. Doesn't the Bible say if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there is no sacrifice that remains for us? Oh, I think you sin willfully. There's no sacrifice for you. You're condemned. You're going to hell. And a person's overcome with that sense of condemnation. The enemy took the scriptures and twisted them and used them against us. That's what he's trying to do with Jesus. But again, Jesus, he said, it is also written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You know, Jesus showed us something important there. The way he responded to the devil. He didn't only respond with the word, but he responded with the appropriate word for the situation. And you see, that's why it's so important that we know our Bibles. That's why it's so important that we study them diligently. That's why it's so important that I hide God's word in my heart so that when the enemy comes with one of those obscure, bizarre kinds of temptations, that I will have not just a general word, but I will have that specific word to be able to respond to him as Jesus did. Turn these stones into bread. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Bow down and worship me. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Cast yourself down. 
Because it is written, he will give his angels charge. It is also written, you shall not tempt the Lord. You see, Jesus had, he had the response, the perfect response. And that's how we effectively overcome the enemy. And that's what John said. You are strong and you overcome the wicked one. Why? Because the word of God abides in you. And as the word of God resides in us, as we hold fast to the word of God, as we stand upon it, all of those flaming arrows of the wicked one that come our way, whether they be personal things that have to do with the intimate aspects of your own life or whether they be things that are just sort of flung out there, you know, stuff we hear as we're out in the world. Somebody at work says something, they're quoting some famous atheist or something like that and, you know, some of the blasphemous things these guys are saying. I've talked to many people over the years who... You know, one of those fiery darts will end up just sticking in their mind and they just can't seem to get over it. I remember a few years ago talking to a person right out in the back there who inadvertently at the time didn't really realize it, but had picked up the Da Vinci Code and read it before everybody, you know, before the movie came out and before it became uh, known amongst the Christian community just how uh, antagonistic the book was toward Christianity. And the poor guy had read the book and he was just being, you know, he was being tormented by so many of the things that were said there. But again, if you have a good grip on the word of God, if you understand the scriptures, you you read through that stuff and it's just, you know, you've got that shield of faith and those, those flaming arrows, they don't stick. They just sort of bounce off of you. So we've got to hide God's word in our hearts. Now, in closing, going back to just the the bigger picture of what's happening here with Adam and Eve, once again, I want to just address what their sin actually was. And as I mentioned before, there's been all kinds of speculation as to what happened, you know, for everything from this is mythological, this is a fable, there's, there's nothing to it, it's, uh, you know, it's symbolic of something else. Of course, quite often we hear people talk about the apple that was eaten. Uh, just for your information, it was not an apple, or at least it's, it doesn't say that it was an apple. might have been, but we're not told it was an apple. But, you know, so some have, you know, talked about the apple that was eaten. Some have suggested that it was maybe a grape that was fermented. And and actually the sin there in the garden was that Adam and Eve got drunk. Those with a sex obsession have somehow twisted the whole thing to be, you know, it was a sexual thing. Uh, It doesn't make any sense because God had previously told them to be fruitful and multiply. And God doesn't have the sexual hangups that a lot of people do. So... You know, what, what, was, what was happening? What, what was their sin? Well, one writer said this, and I, I agree with him. He said it was not eating a piece of fruit per se. Their sin was coveting godlike power, craving something that was not rightfully theirs, rejecting their nature as created, limited, finite beings and trying to be what they never could be, divine. 
like Satan who tempted them, they wanted to be their own God. That was the real issue. That's what happened. You know, as we pointed out previously, some will say, well, how could, you know, you're, you're trying to tell me that all of the suffering and misery and affliction and wars and catastrophes, and you're trying to tell me that that all is because they took a bite of an apple? No, it's not what we're saying. The fruit was representative. It was simply a representative of whether they would obey or disobey God. And they aspired like the devil who tempted them. They aspired at that point. Remember what he said, you will be like God. And that's what they aspired to be. That same writer that I just quoted said this. He said, just looking at the whole picture, I'll close with this. He said, God is good and created a perfect world. This is, this is our response to the critics, to the skeptics. God is good and created a perfect world. But one of the things that make humans and angels intelligent beings is freedom. They had the freedom to obey God or to turn away from him. And to turn away from God, the source of all goodness, is to create evil. Evil does not have an independent existence, nor was it created by God. Evil is created by sin. The decision to sin was made in the spiritual realm by Satan and other angels who are intelligent beings capable of genuine moral choice. Sin then entered our world through the free moral choices made by the first human beings, Adam and Eve. From there, the plague has spread through all of history because of the free moral choices humans continue to make. Why is the world the mess that it's in? It's not because of God. It's not God's fault. It's because free moral agents, me, you, everybody else on the planet, we have chosen to exercise our free will and quite often to do so against the will of God. Why has God allowed it all to happen? This way, that, that's the big philosophical question. If there is a God, why would he allow it all to happen this way? There is only one answer. Love. God loved us so much that even when he saw the sin and suffering that would darken and distort his creation, he chose to create us anyway. As Augustine so wisely put it, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to suffer no evil at all. God judged it better. We can't totally understand it. It's one of those profound mysteries, but God deemed it better. And he did so because of love. And with that in mind, it just, I think really the proper response is just bowing our heads in worship and saying, so be it, Lord. Amen. 
For the month of September, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, God of All Things, Rediscovering the Sacred in an Everyday World by Andrew Wilson. Have you ever wondered why God created things? Why did God create rainbows? Why did God create rain? Why did God create different animals or vegetation? Why did God create anything at all? Well, in his book, Andrew Wilson explains that God had a very specific purpose for creation, and God uses it even to this day to display His wisdom and to teach us that wisdom as well. Gleaning the insights that can be found in ordinary things, Andrew Wilson takes from both the Old and New Testaments to show how the ordinary things of God can reveal the extraordinary God of all things. The book, God of All Things, Rediscovering the Sacred in an Everyday World by Andrew Wilson is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Genesis. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.